So listen, we really need to decide a pronunciation for this fucking director because there's there's nothing. I've went through like five different pronunciation things and they were all different. Everyone was well, different. I think we should confuse everyone and you should choose one and I'll choose another. I thought it was either Hanukkah or Hanaki. And then I clicked on that one and laughed my ass off. Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast where we sit through the most disturbing films that cinema has to offer so that you don't have to. I'm Marta Tavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today's episode is about a renowned but controversial filmmaker who specializes in the unwatchable. That would be the Austrian director and two-time Palme d'Or winner, Michael Haneke. We'll be discussing two of his most punishing and notorious films, 1997's Funny Games and 2012's Amour. But actually, the first thing I clicked on was like, Hanik. I'm like, what? His name's Hanik? Or there's like the most American one, like Haneke or Hanky. I mean, he's Austrian, so I guess it depends on, there's probably like a German pronunciation and an American. Michael Hanky. I like Mike Hanky. Yeah, it's Hanky. Big Mike Hanky. Mike yeah, Hanky. I'm pretty sure it's like yeah. me call. We'll just refer to him as Mike the whole time. We're going to say Haneke. I do want to start out just by talking about him a little bit because I've seen... I think all of his movies, except like two, including his very last one that nobody liked uh, called Happy End. Yeah. And where are you coming from? I've seen quite a few. I was really obsessed with the White Ribbon for a while. Code Unknown is one that I like turn over in my hands every once in a while and wonder what the fuck it is. Uh, Oh, I love Code Unknown. Yeah. Same with uh, Funny Games, which is just, you know, one that you stumble upon when you're looking through lists as like a young film person looking for just like, what is the most fucked up movie out there? You know, like it's always on those lists. And that's definitely where I found that one. And uh, what's the other one? The uh, something about the wolf. You're the wolf. There's a bunch. There's Time of the Wolf. Time of the Wolf, which I really I really like that one which is like about the end of the world. That one was actually like a big uh, in- inspiration for the f- film we did together, Mark, uh, secretly. Uh, when I watched that, I was like, there's a way of doing post-apocalypse. We did a post-apocalyptic backyard gay movie called Ronald Wants to Be a Barber. That's our plug. That's our plug for ourselves there right at the beginning. We're supposed to save those for the end, but yeah. Tied yeah. up in development hell, but one day audiences everywhere will see it it's on youtube so yeah um i need to see time of the wolf again because i remember being a little underwhelmed by that but he has so many notable movies like there's the piano teacher cachet i think is a big one for oh yeah it's cocky kind of Mm -hmm. movie and i always kind of think about lars von trier when i think about michael haneke for some reason because they both kind of are provocateurs, you could say, and make some difficult movies, although the way that they do it, I think, is pretty different. So Michael Haneke gets accused of a lot of different things, like of being scolding and condescending towards his audience, you know, being cold and clinical and being more interested in punishing the viewers than in giving them a good time. 
maybe even more so than Von Trier, because you could argue maybe there's even a moralistic thing going on that Von Trier usually doesn't, at least when it comes to funny games. Uh, and that's why I think that's a really good, that's like the quintessential Haneke movie. Although nothing really approaches that level of cruelty in his other ones, I feel like. That one is like the the climax of him just being so serious and so cruel to the audience in this way. So yeah, Funny Games is the one we chose, although we could have gone in different directions with this. I know the piano teacher has a few really disturbing moments in it. A lot of them are very eerie, but nothing I think is as intense and just flat out like harrowing as Funny Games is. And borderline unwatchable. Boy, oh boy, yeah, oh boy. You know, I'm not totally sure what epi- what uh, order these episodes are going to come out in, but we have already recorded an episode for Antichrist and Freddy Got Fingered. Um, and those are mainly movies that just show you gross things. They didn't really get under my skin the way that Funny Games does. Funny Games really kind There's of intention. That's the real thing. Like, in Freddy Got Fingered, it's so much more about like just the wildest, silliest things that can come into Tom Green's head. And Antichrist is all of just like the mad scribblings of Lars von Trier on his worst days. And there's no like I think we talked about how like the real thing about that is like it's a nightmare and it's not about unpacking what it means. And it's not about like subtext necessarily where this is all like you feel like someone is like arguing with you through this movie or like pointing at you. There's like clear intention and it's quite often very difficult to figure out what the intention is and why someone would do this and why I should keep sitting through this whole thing, you know? Yeah. And maybe before we go any further, I'll do a quick plot synopsis. Um, not really diving into the, the weird meta stuff that this gets into. Oh, and we will be talking about Amor in this in this episode as well, right? Double header, yeah. So it's been a yes. real it's been a real happy uh, evening and day watching these two movies back to back. I might need a little break deep. after this. So, anyways, the plot here is pretty simple. We have a family, a mom, a dad, and a little kid um, who are you know kind of upper class, going to their vacation home. And essentially, this turns into a home invasion thriller. There's uh, lots of movies like this. Uh, I mean, you could look at like The Strangers, maybe um, anything where there's a group of people breaking in and holding a family hostage. And in this case, it's two young men um, whose real names we never find out. I mean, they call themselves by a bunch of different names. So maybe one of them is real. Uh, but I don't think when they call each other like Tom and Jerry and Beavis and Butthead, uh, those are clearly put-ons. Um, yeah, and they just show up, and one thing leads to another, and they take the family hostage, and they seem to have no particular end game except to terrorize and eventually kill them. I think what's interesting about this movie is that it works on two levels. So we have these ways that the fourth wall is broken, And the killers actually start to talk to the audience and kind of control the narrative. But all the while, there is a real thriller going on under there that I think is insanely effective. Yes, it it, it keeps on 
oscillating between like a very capital M movie, like thriller feel, you know, home invasion genre movie. Then it ventures into like fourth wall breaking aside, like the reality of it just seems so painful. And so like the, the movie gloss like gets pulled away from you quite often. There's a scene in here that is just a, a stationary shot of one of the most horrifying scenes in the movie. And you just sit there with it like for 10 whole minutes. And we'll, we'll touch on it later, I think, but there's no cutting and you just are, have the feeling like you are like watching something very real happening. Uh, and that's what's so painful about this. After a while, you don't really know what this director is capable of. And you don't, you don't know what this narrative is going to throw at you uh, because they're, they're, it proves again and again that there are no rules here to this game. Yeah, and Haneke is a very exacting, controlled, precise like formalist. He's a really technically skilled filmmaker, and he has complete control at all times over the tone, the length of shots. Like you oh, said, yeah. there are some shots here that go on forever, and in general, he might he kind of goes into the whole kind of slow cinema movement, or some people might kind of lump him in there, uh, that there can be lots of long silences, uh, lots of super long, unbroken takes. Um, although they're, I think they're kind of uh, labeled out deliberately here. There's not that many of them, but it's very effective yeah. when it does happen. Yeah, I mean, he reminds me of like Kubrick and Tarkovsky in the way that his shots, and I don't know enough like cinematic vocabulary necessarily to like break it down, like as to like what's going on or why, but like every single shot that comes up, it just feels like, like it, like in it, like in your a Kubrick movie, you are, someone is showing you something like, like you get this feeling that your eyes are being like pulled like someone wants to show you something like look here and it's like a very like forceful sort of gesture every time it cuts it feels like i'm just like thrown in especially the fact that we stay with a lot of the shots for a long time they seem haphazard at first and then you see how they are like very expertly composed and very intentional again intention 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 for sure. And let's start getting into his intentions here. And I think a good place to start breaking this down with is in the very opening of this movie, um, which has the family driving to their lake house and they're playing opera CDs for each other and trying to guess like what it is, like a little game that they play, a uh, perfect just bourgeois little. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a game. It's the first it's of game. the games. First of the many games. It's one of the best if anything, this has one of the best beginnings to any movie that I can think of. Like, it's like just such a visceral, like wild beginning. Right. Yeah. And what I think what Seth's referring to is that all of a sudden then the credits start and this just wailing hardcore song comes on. Yeah. And they like put, they put in one of the CDs and it's like that he, you know, he guesses it right. It's handle. And it's just like this nice little classical piece. And, it's a shot of them driving and it feels like, you know, just a family movie. And then all of a sudden, funny games comes on the fucking screen and it's John Zorn and Yamataka eyes from boredoms is screaming and shit. 
and it just sounds like like grindcore jazz. It's so intense, but they still have like the same look on their face. Exactly, and that's the point: is that 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 move with the opening credits and the music is specifically for the audience only. These characters are not in on this part, and I feel like that kind of is teaching you how to watch this movie and how to process it in that there's almost like two movies going on at once here there's the real movie that has characters in it who are reacting to everything exactly as human beings would when they go through what they go through in this movie and then there's another movie that is directly for us the audience that the characters aren't in on yes that has something to do with us being in on the idea that it is a movie and it is like a generic setup and these are like sort of sort of an archetypal like nice family meets two strangers who break in but it yeah it zooms out from there and that's just a clue at that point still because i think after that point it's a quite a while until the fourth wall gets explicitly broken so if we just talk about in the meantime there's kind of when the movie is at its most conventional um Whereas an actual thriller, it just ratchets up tension. And, you know, these two uh, young men show up uh, at the house when the wife is alone, wanting to borrow some eggs. And the whole way that this scene unfolds with them being very polite, but also a little too assuming, uh, a little imposing and awkward. And you see them slowly start to wear away a little bit at the wife's uh, patience or what she's comfortable with. And I think it's just a, just an exquisitely like squirm inducing. It's real world horror for sure. I think we've all been in these situations, not quite, they, they you know, if you're lucky, they haven't, they don't boil to this, um, <laughs> this craziness, but we've all been in those sort of situations where, yeah, the whole thing is it starts out with just like, someone coming over and you're like it's all formality you're like going through going through the motions of like oh yes neighbor come in neighbor let you want some eggs of course i'll get you some eggs like oh you know oh you dropped the eggs like oh well i i suppose that's okay you know uh all right and then it's like one thing after another you slowly are like it's that 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 mode of thought starts to dissipate after a while you can't keep up these formalities and the longer they're in your kitchen the longer it becomes apparent that this is a stranger and they i don't know this person and i like most of the time we have the confidence in that that you know people are are safe and generally like not here to hurt us but Yes, I mean, it, it's, it just keeps going from there where it's like, and then uh, he wants, he like drops them again, isn't it? Like he, he gets more eggs and then drops the eggs again. Because uh, a dog jumps on him. Because their dog jumps on him. And then he insists on like, well, I, I still need eggs. And then she's like, we only have the eggs for us, then we won't have any eggs. And this stranger stares at you and says, uh-huh, and? And you just, and it's this uncomfortable, like, they have now bypassed the formality, right? 
and they are now crossing a line that we and it, and it starts to dawn on you that like i don't know how far the, like how, how 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 far over the line this person might go and you can see that slowly dawning a lot of the movie is about like the situation slowly dawning on the faces of these actors and that's really where the acting comes in like that's what's really amazing about the performances i think is like watching their faces as they're like oh this you can see it go from like a six to a 10 all of a sudden in intensity like oh this is what's going on because then uh <laughs> is it is the next thing the cell phone that's that's somewhere in between i think the eggs is that he starts just he knocks the cell phone into the water the other guy wants to try out the husband's uh golf club but yeah another guy comes in another fine looking young man and you know yeah it's like it, there's an uncomfortable feeling of it being like these two, you know, physically capable young men and a woman alone in the house. Um, and one of them has a blunt object and he's very like, you know, kind. They're very polite. You know, one of them is like a skinny guy and the other they even have like this comedy duo kind of feel to them. Like one of them's like a skinny, tall guy. The other guy is the fat guy who like is always like, I'm hungry. I want more food, you know, and then like the little guy makes fun of him for wanting food and stuff it's like <laughs> but you're like this this isn't right there's something wrong well yeah because it eventually becomes clear that they will not leave and it gets to the point where the wife is trying to just insist that they leave and they're still using pretense at this point like i i'm just shocked i don't know what happened what could have caused you to want to kick us out this is i mean i'm gonna have to say something to the people we're getting the eggs for but we're still going to need the eggs and they just talk and talk and they won't leave. And that's when the husband and the son come and show up. Now, you know, not to drag this out too much. He eventually uh, smashes the dad's leg with the golf club. And from that point on, it's just a it's a pure sadistic hostage situation uh, with no apparent motive. Right. And I, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't belabor it too much. But this opening is sort of like a good example of like. It's all about tracking it with the from from the perspective of these two's like twisted idea of a game, which is like it's a very like masculine kind of strategy of like I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. You know, they're like a very like mm-hmm. boyish kind of game of like that they're doing. It's like, well, I, I'm not doing anything. Why? Why? Are you, why are you freaking out? I'm not freaking out. You know, and like the whole thing eventually culminates in the dad slapping one of them and then they're like okay you you hit me you i you 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 cross the lines and i'm going to cross the line even further and smash your fucking kneecap with this golf club and kill the dog and then yes it goes from there just escalating and escalating and escalating yeah and there is a sense that All of that stuff at the beginning is just a pretense as far as the way that they actually meet and the way that things escalate. Uh, It seems to me like the moment they got into the house, they weren't going to leave and they were just going to mess with these people in any way. And one of the kind of threads in this movie is that question, why are you doing this? And their first answer is just, why not? And as things go on, you know, there's a scene later on where they're again asked, you know, what do you want? Why are you doing this? And 
he starts giving different answers. And it reminded me of the Joker in the Dark Knight when he starts, he has, he tells this origin story. And then the next time he tells a different origin story. And then at that point, you're realizing, oh, probably they're all made up. We're never going to get the rationale that we want out of this. And these two guys do the same thing. I mean, kudos to uh, Haneke many, many years before the Dark Knight that the, you know, First, he gives a story about, oh, well, Tubby's parents got divorced and that traumatized him. Um, but not really. They just had this depraved family life and, you know, he had sex with his mom. And then he's like, no, I'm just kidding, though. But really, we're drug addicts. So, you know, we rob houses like this and we steal their drugs or we're the money for drugs. Uh, and I think the last thing he says is like, oh, no, he's just a spoiled little shithead just with world weary ennui. Right. Which I love all of that. It's so it, it it really hits the audience. That's like one of some of the first pangs of like fourth wall breaking almost where like you you feel as an audience member, you're trying to like, OK, I maybe have seen this movie before I, or I've seen something like this or like, what's he going for? Like, is it like this whole like, oh, OK, they're poor kids and they're getting revenge on rich fuckers who have these vacation homes? And they they and they spout that, and then they contradict that. So they're like, okay, it's not that, and it's like, okay, but no. And then they like they're clearly like, are they doing the thing where it's just like, oh, okay, they're rich kids and they're spoiled, so they're bored, so they do evil things. But like that gets checked off too. Um, so you're just rapidly like, who are they? They they almost become this like force of nature or something. You almost like start to wonder if they're like supernatural or like what 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 are these creatures and in a movie like this on one level they're doing that to fuck with this family and to be sadistic and to not give them any explanation but on that second level with the audience especially with the way this film is set up they are directly challenging our own need for some kind of a motive And before I get too deep into the rest of the meta stuff, the very first time that we really break the fourth wall, I believe, is when he's um, one of the killers is making the wife look for her dead dog. We don't even know that's what she's looking for at first. And as she's looking for it, all of a sudden, the guy turns towards the camera. Oh, that's right. It's so early. He winks right at us. Yeah, it's so early in the movie. So... (laughs) At that point, he winks. If this is your first time watching it, you might be wondering, oh, that's weird. I've never seen that happen in a movie like this. He just, did he just look at me, the viewer, winking? What's going on here? This is terrifying. Uh, You know, up to this point, it's terrifying and just full of tension. And, you know, there's, there's a little boy here that's in peril and watching his parents in peril. And uh, there's nothing funny about that. He doesn't pull any punches at any point in this movie. And yet, we're getting winked at. And then, when they actually turn to the camera and start talking to us, that is when oh. uh, this turns into something totally different. Yeah, and, but but like the family very clearly, they don't even comment on it. They like, it's almost as if these moments are like Ferris Bueller moments, like where they can... Mm-hmm. They they turn and start talking to the camera, and the family 
it's it, it almost reinforces the horror of it that the family doesn't have have knowledge of any of this that they are in a movie but these guys have the power like it adds to their power right that they know that they're in a movie or or they're in control of whatever this bizarre universe is right the killers in this are like our mediators between the two different movies going on for the viewer and for the characters. And it's very disconcerting, especially because the stuff that they say to us is basically, so what, you think they stand a chance? I mean, you're on their side, right? Uh, I think at one point they're like, you know, don't, don't forget the entertainment value. We don't want to be deprived of our pleasure here. um, If we don't see you being tortured or if you're gagged and nobody can hear you. They say eventually like, Oh well, we won't shoot you yet. Like their their whole thing is, we think that you'll be dead by is it nine a.m. or something? You'll be dead. Yeah, they make a bet basically, and they like are the family often at various points is like begging them, just like just shoot us, like end this, like we don't want to do this anymore. And they're like, well, there's not enough. There's not a that wouldn't make a full movie, would it? You know, we need more time. Then you you look at the runtime and it's like yes, only forty five minutes. Like that's not long enough for a movie or whatever. Like and it's just like oh god. And so that's the thing with this movie. So my little story is that I first encountered this. Gosh, I mean, almost fifteen years ago at this point via the American remake, or I should say the English language remake with mostly American actors. Uh, which we should mention a little bit because this is a really strange case where Haneke Haneke remade this movie himself as his next big project after a cachet, I think. And it's almost a shot-for-shot remake from what I remember. It's the same script. It literally seems meant just to exist so that an English-speaking audience that doesn't want to see subtitles is going to be more susceptible to it and to check it out. He's talked about um, having originally wanted to to make this film with an American cast and crew in English, and there just being budgetary constraints that prevented that. And I do think it's interesting that he went on to, to do it anyway. This is a shot-for-shot remake. There are some things that happen in uh, slightly out of sequence when you compare it to the original, but... Uh, he basically made the exact same film. They even reconstructed the original set with the exact proportions. I don't know. I think that there's something like he clearly wanted this to reach an American audience. Yes, he wants to hurt more people with this movie or whatever his intention is. He wants to assault more audiences with it. And the American version is even more like cinematic looking. It's to me more like, conventionally appealing like michael pitt is one of the boys that one of the like uh break-in boys in it and he's obviously like hot as hell so there's like this element of like adding a candy coating to like lure you in because i've seen both of them too and yeah it's like they're both at a certain point are just like genuinely disturbing of course but like yeah there's a whole other angle to it feeling like even more of like a like you get lulled into thinking maybe this time it's going to be a little easier to handle a little a little easier on us nope nope and they're so similar that really i mean if you're listening to this and you've only seen one or the other i still feel like you've pretty much seen the same movie uh because they it really is just him wanting to target 
I guess specifically an American audience, because that's that's what the uh, you know there's the language barrier, but also you've got Naomi Watts, uh, Michael Pitt, uh, Tim Roth, I think is the father, and you know maybe that's something about he sees being uniquely American about uh, this criticism he has about a. I don't know, needing the violence or enjoying the violence. And when I first saw this back in like, it was like 2007, I think when it came out, it kind of pissed me off. Like it upset me, but also my reaction was, what was this whole thing just to torture me and then lecture me about it? Like, why am I watching your movie and then being scolded during your movie for watching it (laughs) or assuming that, I only am interested in seeing these people suffer. And I didn't really know what to do with that at the time. Um, But I do have kind of a different view on that now. But maybe you have something to add to that first. I mean, honestly, I always walk away a little perplexed from this movie uh, as far as intention goes. Like, I, I guess I ask you, yeah, it seems like it's kind of... It seems too simplistic, but maybe that is is perfect for it. It's kind of it's harsh and punky and is it is its intention to be something like that? Like just like remind you that you're never safe, remind us that the world is cruel, remind you that we are base creatures quite often with like evil desires and a want to see violence. Because I guess they're like, I mean, it it doesn't package the violence, though, in an appealing way at all, which confuses Mm. me. Like, you you think if that is the intention, he would make some sort of, like, ripoff of a slasher movie and, like, make it so over the top. That would be his way of, like, luring us in and being like, see, you're having fun watching this this guy with a machete cutting people's heads off in these horrible ways, which we do like watch and we do laugh. You know, the majority of us watch those horror movies and laugh Mm -hmm. and enjoy ourselves and even get like a little rush, a catharsis from like seeing violence. But like here, I I mean, it's never packaged in a way that is satisfying. Like you're always pretty much despising these people. Like you, you laugh out of maybe exasperation and disbelief, but that's about it. Like you are watching like, a very typical family that it's hard not to put your own family in their shoes or like think about what would happen if your own mom was there and these criminals are making Mm -hmm. her strip while you're like a young boy blindfolded and you're hearing this like as these two boys like make her strip and threaten her with a gun and things like that. You're constantly like, it's nothing. Yeah. Again, I don't I don't really know. And I not the, the the fourth wall breaking also adds to this intention that it is a cinematic like lecture of some kind. But I I yeah, I'm curious I'm curious about your thoughts to be honest. Well, it occurred to me that you could edit probably less than five minutes out of this movie and it it would just be the story of this horrific home invasion. Uh Again, we, we're going to spoil everything on every movie we talk about in this podcast. So everybody does end up dead except the killers. And uh, 
we'll go step by step a little through that because there are some particularly disturbing things in there. But if this was just a movie that just did that, the bad guys killed them, they moved on to the next house, and it ended, that would be quite a different experience. And I think what I got out of all of that other stuff this time is that it actually did make me just stop and think about what we expect from movies like this. Like you mentioned the catharsis, and I think that you know there are tons of home invasion movies or, say, a, a revenge movie, like a rape revenge movie, where... The first part is about putting these people through the gauntlet and, you know, watching the innocents suffer. But you get the you get a thrill of the the catharsis, the retribution, the escape afterwards. And to achieve that, it kind of requires the part where the people are suffering. So, and, you know, there is a certain enjoyment you might get just out of the tension of it. And I'm not ashamed of any of that stuff. You know, I watch horror movies and I think that's just inherent to storytelling that, you know, we allow for things like that. So I, I don't really see this as implicating me or teaching me a lesson, even if that's what it's trying to do. But I did appreciate that it did make me think about these things in a way that makes this a much, much richer and even more unnerving experience than it would be otherwise. And it, it almost feels like, though it is criticizing bad movies, like a movie that is just uh, where someone is just getting off on the, the torture porn aspect of it. Like, even if they're not the bad guys, maybe it's in, you know, Saw or Hostel or something where mm -hmm. we are getting a thrill out of the awful thing happening, but we we have kind of a contract with the movie where we're going to get the the catharsis, the thrill afterwards. This movie definitely denies us that big time. Do you think it's like trying to condition us for the next time we go and watch Saw or something like that, where we like turn our brains off and maybe it's trying to condition us to think differently next time we go back and watch like Friday the 13th or something? Maybe. I don't know. I probably am not going to suddenly see movies in a new way after this. But I don't know. Within the, the reality just of this movie, I guess it's all just so effective. And the way that they still will have people break the fourth wall and kind of expose this as a movie, somehow the movie manages to do that without distancing us from the horrors that are happening or diluting the tension, which yeah. is just such a feat. I can't help but, like, this movie made me feel shit. <laughs> and all the way to the very end, I was just nerve-wracked by it, even with all of that stuff. Yeah, listening to this conversation and, like, reading about it, like, is one thing, and I would immediately... I, yeah, I don't really understand how he pulls it off. That's a good point. I don't know how he pulls it off and how it doesn't just become a cartoon, like a uh, borderline like Tarantino cartoon of like layers of self-awareness and all that kind of stuff going on. Because it, like, one second, he's looking at the camera, wink, wink, laugh, laugh. And then the, the next second, it's the sun has been shot. And you feel... You absolutely feel the weight of that. 
and there's you feel nothing but the reality of that and there's there's no like oh yeah but it's just a it's just a silly movie like the guy just winked at me he's just like a fourth wall breaking creature like no i'm immediately pulled back into the reality of the scenario and i feel shit yeah and you're right i want to talk about that because at a certain point in this movie like the unimaginable happens and they shoot and kill the little kid and then just leave the parents there and there's like 40 minutes left of the movie at this point and mm-hmm. you're the traditional way that we experience like stakes in movies especially in thrillers are just kind of out the window at this point because on one level it's like who cares what happens at this point this is the most horrible thing has happened the parents themselves i'm sure don't even yeah, care in the moment like yeah of what's going to happen and the killers are gone for like I don't know, 20, 25 minutes. And that stretch of the movie is just excruciating. Like it goes on forever. Yeah, the opposite of other thrillers occurs because it is like usually the action is amped up at in the third act and like the cutting is all over the place. We're immediately greeted with a 10 minute long shot of two parents and their the body of their dead son. And we're just watching them in shock, like crawling across the floor at minute four and eventually reaching each other at like minute six, eventually finally breaking down like at minute seven, you know, and it's just like this whole, we're watching the entire like arc of this initial reaction to their son dying. And this is like definitely the moment where you're just like, you're definitely in this modern age, like scrolling up and seeing how long the movie has left. And you're like, Mm. I don't know what to do about this. (laughs) <laughs> what they're going to do to me now. Right, because in a regular movie, the only thing that you could think could happen at that point is, well, maybe they're gearing us up for the big revenge part and they're going to give us some kind of satisfying where the you know the killers are captured or the parents confront them again. And now, you know, the, the crime has happened and maybe it's going to try and give us some kind of cheap thrill out of the revenge. Maybe doesn't, you know, play that way. And it's not what happens because after another, like 20 minutes go by the mom gets recaptured by the killers. And then they're just, Hey, we're back in the movie now after this long absence. And there they are just back in the living room again, tied up and terrified and it just goes, it gets right back to it. Yep. Till it ends, basically. Actually, yeah. this is this is where the most galvanizing thing happens. Like, I think the biggest <laughs> rupture in this movie. This. Yeah, exactly. Is we get a we do get a moment where the mom grabs a shotgun and she blows Tubby away. And if anything, that's our catharsis. Yes. Yes. Kill them, please kill them. And then the other guy starts going, no, no, where's the damn remote? And grabs the TV remote and rewinds the movie that we just saw and stops her from taking the gun. Yep. Changes the whole timeline. And that's, I think that's at the point where he says something like, you know, well, you want a real ending, right? With plausible plot developments, you know, talking back to the audience again. And, uh, yeah, he and then he uses that opportunity to just go ahead and kill the two of them. Which is a funny joke in itself because it's like, oh, yeah, plausible. We just watched someone use a magical remote to rewind time so that they can 
bring their friend back from the dead and change the stakes and essentially cheat all drama and interrupt all drama all dramatic arc you know <laughs> so it's like no you're you're not even yeah you're you're fucking with the entire intention and you're fucking with the movie like yeah and that's that's pretty much the you know the end point of the movie they move on to where it seems like they're about to start doing it at another house. Uh, we don't get our catharsis or anything. Classic end of a end of a horror movie kind of thing. Like, oh, here they're going to another house. Like, it's gonna happen to another person. Do you have eggs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't do not tell these people you have eggs for God's sake. Yeah, and if anything, it's like rubbing your face in it at that point. Anytime at this point in the movie, like anytime it's like. What? It's just a regular horror movie, you know? It's just like throwing a trope at you. You're just like, no, you're not. What is this? And all the way to the very end, it throws one more thing at you, which is earlier on in the movie, we see somebody like accidentally drop a knife onto this boat. And if you remember that and then finally see them getting onto the boat, um, it does give you another shot of the knife. This is like the second to last scene. And the wife does find the knife and start to, you know, saw away at it. And this is the classic, you know, Chekhov's knife, right? That Mm -hmm. we see early on that's kind of setting us up. And, of course, one of the killers just sees her with it, takes it, tosses it away, and nothing comes of it whatsoever. Yeah. She gets thrown over. She dies. But I think that does say something about how this movie does make me think about stuff like that. Like if that opening credits thing is the movie that's just for us, the characters don't get to be in on and all this other stuff is too, then, you know, normal stuff in movies, like the shot that nobody actually witnesses happen except the audience, the knife falling into the boat. That's That's something just for us to, you know, turn the screws. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It kind of lays bare all these different dramatic things. And you could argue to what end it does that, but I don't know. This is this is uncompromising. Whatever this the goal of this movie is, and maybe it is just to scold us for wanting violence that maybe we don't even actually want. Or now that you mention Chekhov's knife um, more, that is more essential than I remember. I feel like and. Regardless of if he's making some sort of greater like social commentary, I feel like there is something to the commentary on movies and narrative. Uh, there is, especially right now, it feels like there is such a dialogue on the internet, like since the advent of things like fan fiction and whatnot, of like how to how to trope this and like genre, like the talk of genre seems just like paramount anymore when we're talking about novels and stories, um, which I see Hanaki or Hanky, however you want to say it is frustrated here clearly with our ideas about stories, that stories are just these little things where you plug in a plus B and it equals C and the audience gets to sit there and be like, Oh, well, saw the knife in the first act, so that means it's going it's, to it matters. It's going to like come up, come of something in the third act, you know. Or oh, there's a little kid. They don't ever kill the little kid, so don't even worry about that. They don't yeah, they would never do that. And they do. Because fuck you. Like it shouldn't be like stories shouldn't be like that short of like just 
obviously there should be entertainment out there and just like low stakes entertainment is fine. But if we're actually like looking for something of substance, like we should be trying to like escape a lot of that. And it shouldn't be just this silly game where the audience gets to be gratified by them like being like aha i saw it coming all along and like i like also that's a critique of most audience members of movies they apparently are you know feel belittled when they they're talked down to and like oh it's like oh i just thought it was boring because i saw it coming the whole time but like the flip side is like quite often they'll flip around and be like the movie was just random and like i don't know there, I just felt like I didn't, it was just, had no plot and it was just crazy or something, which I find so aggravating. And I, I think I applaud this director for, not necessarily for this movie because it's so punishing, but for that thought. Yeah, I think that it's, it kind of come, becomes about how we watch movies first on the level of just, you know, yelling at the screen and at the characters or like, oh, that's a stupid decision or, you know, oh man, I can't believe that they did that or no, no, mm-hmm. no, don't, don't go around the corner. Don't do it. And then the other thing is, you know, afterwards saying like, I can't believe they killed the kid. And we don't mean they, the characters, we mean like the movie, that the movie did that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And funny games in a way is about our two like headed hydra of a relationship with these movies. And so even if it does maybe get a little condescending or like, Hey, you don't need to tell, you don't need to tell me this stuff. It still does make me think about all of that. And it gets under my skin and I don't know, watching it again this time, I don't want to watch it again for a very, very long time, but I'm kind of convinced that I'm kind of convinced that this is like a masterpiece and much more so than I don't know Antichrist, which just kind of seemed like a a big a big joke or a a, a prank. Not not that, not that it wasn't sincere, but that there was just nothing under the hood like it was acting about. And this is something I'm never gonna forget, like deep in my bones. So, anyways, uh, we like to ask if we would unwatch a movie if we could after we're done and I will say no for this because I think it's a great movie. Um, but I won't be rewatching it anytime soon. I agree. I have a hard time actually. Uh, part of me feels very much that this is a worthwhile exercise for me to go through. Some of it though, I just feel bitter about and I've, I feel the cruelty reaches a certain level where I am like, I could have just been told this. I could have just maybe read a pamphlet or something. Um, Would would you you feel feel it? And I, I mean, really, like, I'm not feeling, quite often I'm not feeling his message at those points. If, If anything, I'm more or less being reminded of just, like, how horrible it would be if, while on vacation, me and my family were assaulted and killed one by one. I'm like reminded of it in a very realistic way, um, which I guess, you know, has its value of like exposure therapy or something. But like, <laughs> uh, 
No, I, 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 I do value it. There's something about it that I find very mysterious that I can't deny that makes me watch it over the years multiple times. But yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bitter. I think this movie invites you to have that reaction too. So, and I did when I first saw it however many years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I get it. And I would say that there are things that are, uh, my critiques are kind of answered in our next movie. Good segue. In some, in some ways. Yes, look at that. So yeah, we also wanted to make sure we talked about Amour um, of all his other movies because it is a hard, tough watch, but in a very different way. And a lot about it, I think, is very different uh, from his normal movies. Just for a little background, this was his second uh, Palm whatever winning film in a row. Uh, I'll just call it the Golden Palm. Palm Door. The Palm Door, the Golden Palm, the top prize. He won it for the White Ribbon. And then his very next movie he showed up with was Amour, and that also won it, which I don't think many filmmakers, if any, maybe we'll need to fact check this, have had such a a run like that as far as with the Cannes Film Festival. It got um, Best Picture, too, Academy Award. Not, or is it nomination? Nomination. Yeah, it had to either be nominated, award. unless they put it in the foreign language category. I'm not sure. It, it, on my little DVD here, it says uh, Academy Award nominations, including oh, Best nice. Picture. Five Academy Award nominations. So yeah, this was, I don't think, greeted as a provocation or as controversial. Uh, clearly, it went over really big with the festival crowd. And I think that it's probably his most straightforward movie that I've seen. It's not a cinematic experiment, really, which is about this older French couple. And they are living in an apartment. And they basically, it all begins with them sitting down to a breakfast. And everything seems normal. And the old man is telling a story. And all of a sudden realizes that his wife is staring at him, but not hearing him. And he stops and he like waves his hand in front of her face and she's just still staring and not moving. And then he goes away to like try something else and comes back and then all of a sudden she's fine. And and she's like eating breakfast like nothing ever happened. And he's like, what the fuck? You just froze on me. I I don't know what happened. And she's like, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. And then she raises her teapot and immediately starts pouring the tea everywhere. We clearly see that she's having some sort of break. And in uh, the next scene or so is really revealed to have had a stroke and she's needing as the movie goes on. Basically, the arc of the movie is us watching her deteriorate and need more and more help from nurses and the husband. And it's ongoing dialogue with their is it her is it their daughter? Yes. I guess I should also mention, yeah, she was uh, the old woman was a famous pianist at one time before the stroke and a lot of the pretty much the only music we hear is pieces that she's played over the years i assume yeah no hardcore music in this no no hardcore music it gets more and more intense because we're watching in true hanaki hanky fashion these long takes of the husband feeding her and it's excruciating the dialogue back and forth is essentially her talking about whether or not she wants to live or not. They handle this that aspect in a very offhand way where it doesn't feel like this is a movie about, you know, euthanasia. It's more like 
she comes back from the hospital having this surgery after her stroke and the whole right side of her body is paralyzed. And she just wants her husband to promise that she will never have to go back to the hospital again, which he doesn't exactly agree to. I think it cuts away before he explicitly says anything. Mm-hmm. And then there is a later point where she says that she just doesn't want to go on and not just not just for burdening him, just her as herself doesn't want to go on. But then that kind of falls by the wayside for a while, and she eventually has a second stroke and becomes pretty much non-communicative. Uh, and those are some really tough parts of the movie to watch, too. And uh, really great work, I think, from uh, the actor who is in that role. Astounding. Um, actually, the, these two main actors, and I'm not going to even try to butcher their French names, but they were rather famous actors from like the French New Wave. And these were like, these were young, attractive, just beautiful people back in the day. Um, and so they kind of bring that baggage with them, the actors mm. themselves. That's interesting. Yeah, and they are like, you know, very old in this movie. Actually, the actor playing the wife has passed uh, since, I think, a few years after the movie came out. And so has the uh, actress who played the uh, woman in Funny Games. Oh, really? Uh, actually, Funny Games is weird because that woman died, the the man who played her husband died, and the guy who played Peter all died. Man, Haneke put it to push things too far that time. Oh, it's cursed. <laughs> it's all cursed. <laughs> Okay, well, okay, it's probably not a curse, at least with this movie, because she was in her 90s. As long as it's not a curse on the podcast for talking about it. About it. Oh, we'll Lord. See. So, yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, too, that it's not even a spoiler to say the opening scene of the movie is kind of a welfare check happening at the apartment, and it's empty except for the woman's almost, like, mummified corpse is found in the bed. So there's no ambiguity about where this is heading from the after the very first scene yeah she's going to die in the apartment yeah but of course it's about exactly you know how she gets there and how her husband deals with getting her there and this is and this is super relatable right i mean any i i know personally my you know just seeing my own grandparents go through this pretty much exact same thing where one of them deteriorates first and the other one is trying to take care of them but they're too old and frail to be able to take on the task completely. The other one doesn't want to go to a nursing home or to a hospital, or maybe they don't even want to go on living at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've seen this happen over and over in real life with you know people that I know and uh, you know family members, stuff like that. So this is a lot more universal than funny games as far as the horrors we see here. I mean, isn't it kind of like always in the back of your mind that like, wow, man, like best case scenario in my own life, I'm with a loved one. And if it lasts long enough, this is how it's going to end, whether it's me or them. Yes. And that is sort of the thing about this. Is it easier or is it harder to have your significant other with you? And I think in some ways it's easier. In some ways, it, it, yeah, there, there isn't a clear answer. Uh, cause yeah, there's, it's death, death is obviously this deep end where we don't, we don't have answers and yeah, it's painful for the husband and it's painful for her to feel like a burden, but at the same time, the, 
I adore this movie because it has this. It's aptly named Amor. Like you can't help but be moved and feel like there's a real connection. Like there is like decades of history between these two and their story of romance has led here and it is still ongoing at like, this is the new, you, you see them entering this new phase of like, now it is no longer about being husband and wife. It is about like, and like having romantic dates and having a fun time. Now it is about me helping you in the most intimate of ways of feeding you and helping you go to the bathroom and things. And it's, it, 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 it keeps on switching between extremely touching and and like heartwarming to absolutely just like off-putting and like uh like almost at a like funny games level of like i don't know if i can handle like watching this sort of pain on screen exactly because you can tell it's michael haneke in how it's so unsentimental about all that stuff um but it's still very it's sincere and uh, just completely heartbreaking, which kind of hits you on a different level than something like Funny Games does. I would say this is more just sad. It feels more pro-human or something. Uh, yes. And I think that's why I respond to it uh, and why it, again, answers some of my like initial uh, nervousness about Haneke. Like, this at least like reiterates that maybe in his older age... He he does have a have a heart and he does value hu- human relationships and things like that in a very like concrete overarching way, which, of course, he did. I, I assume he did with funny games. But this, this this movie, it drags you through the ringer emotionally. But I would say in contrast to funny games, there's at least something that I I gain a whole lot more, I feel like, from my exposure to these difficult scenes because I'm seeing something that I will most likely go through, you know, if all goes goes well in my life, I will reach an old age and I will, you know, I'm, I, I might go through this whole process and it's, it, as much as it's scary and upsetting to see this, it is always helpful to either just be reminded of it or to possibly glean something, some sort of epiphany or thought about how that'll feel and how I can prepare for that. Yeah, because there's there's beauty in this and all of the ugliness that you know we have to go through only makes that shine through even brighter that there's like a tenderness here with him taking care of her um as difficult as it is to watch you know him trying to like feed her and she just won't she won't have it um or you know her getting fitted for a diaper for the first time or him helping her in the bathroom or her soiling the bed um you know having to like help bathe her it's all you know it's really painful to watch but we're also seeing him being, you know, committed to this and how he's going to continue showing his love for her. It never reaches like a Lars von Trier level as far as that stuff is concerned for me. That sort of like, obs- like, 
layering the pain to like an absurd level or like a cartoonish level. Mm. This all seems very grounded and like intentional and like it, 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 it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Which I really, yeah, I, I sometimes resent Lars von Trier for some of those choices. Yeah. And so much of what we see is just like mundane. It is just, you know, helping her with like her physical functioning. Nothing outlandish happens in this movie. Um, but it's almost radical. Oh yeah. We'll get to the pigeon. (laughs) Um, Okay. But yeah, it's, it's almost like a radical approach to just never look away and, and show us all of this ugly stuff while at the same time, not being sensationalistic about it. Um, you know, you could imagine how like a Hollywood movie, you, you know, treats topics like, uh, you know, old person getting dementia or something, um, they usually pull their punches. They get really saccharine, but Michael Haneke does not. He doesn't do that. <laughs> That's not how he operates. No, there's no uh, big music swells. Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I think that's yeah, where the power comes from in this movie is that he's still bringing his same you know directorial control. He's still um, shooting everything in a very Haneke esque way. But, you know, what he's showing us is just so real and just unadorned. And I think that's what makes this so powerful. And I think that's also then what makes these these little touches, these little kind of abstract moments stand out all the more. Uh, you brought up the pigeon, right? Did you want to talk about that? Well, yeah, that's like one of the few things in here that doesn't have to do directly with the situation at hand like of the woman dying and the husband caring for her. There's like these two instances. Well, the first one, yeah, where the pigeon comes in through a open window and he just kind of like humorously, it's like a break. It's like a relief kind of in a way. Mm. It's kind of humorous. He's like chasing the pigeon around and trying to throw a blanket on it, like chasing it out of the apartment. And then we go back to the drama at hand, which I don't see Haneke in this situation as being like trying to be too overly symbolic with like the pigeon or something. If anything, I just see that as like what it is, which like in it, like what it is in the context of the cinematic movement, which is it's a release and a reminder that life goes on, right? There's life outside Mm -hmm. of this apartment and life after these two are gone, things will continue kind of. And the pigeon does return later. Yeah, it's just the scene of him chasing it goes on for so long. And it's at so, it's so late in the movie. I believe it's after she actually dies, which we'll talk about that in a second. Um, mm-hmm. That you want to attach this special significance to it. But the moment that I start to think about, okay, so what is, is the pigeon her? Does the pigeon symbolize? I just want to shut it all down because that... Yeah, that instantly is just going to take the magic out of it, and it just feels like right while it's happening, and not not super on the nose. And so, so sh- that's all. Should I we say talk about? about the pigeon? Uh, I, I agree, real quick, with Seth. I think when the pigeon looks into the camera and says "chaos reigns," that it's more of an affirmation than a than than anything else. <laughs> Was this pigeon up for the palm dog too? By the way, these are running jokes from pre- from other episodes. Hopefully, 
You will yeah. have heard the Antichrist episode. And uh, in, in the episode description, we will link to my change.org petition to allow birds into the palm dog contention. So please sign that if you can. Mm-hmm. Palm pigeon. If you can have foxes, there's no reason to exclude pigeons. Yeah. Killer scene. While we're on the pigeon, though, there's a few other moments that are kind of like that. Um, I think after something especially painful happens, there's just like a montage of these paintings that are just like landscapes that doesn't seem oh, to have that. any special significance, but it just it just feels right. You know, it's like this respite. And there's like a point where he has a nightmare too that's a little like expressionistic. Yes. And I think that's basically it. But those things are just like so striking in this context. Because there's so few things like it in the movie. And like, if anything, the paintings are great. Like, I feel like, I'm very aware that I'm like bringing the baggage of the movie to those things Uh, in the same way you might be bringing the baggage to the pigeon scene too, or like where it's like, how does this fit in? Or like, how does this landscape painting fit in with like the greater message of these two going through this death cycle? Um, And really there isn't any like big answer, but you do bring that, like you feel it, like while you're looking at these like landscape painting montages, you're you're, again, just sort of, if anything, you're reminded that there's life beyond here. There is more out there. Uh, It's it's an interesting gesture. Yeah. And I think what you were going to go into is he does make a decision about how this is going to end when it becomes clear that she's just going to be here deteriorating and suffering for a while and there it does handle this scene very delicately where he just starts telling her this story of going to some kind of camp or school when he's little um and writing his mom this letter using stars as a symbol for him wanting to come home and not having fun that he just puts stars on it she'll know what he means and Kind of quickly after that, like he's been prepared for it, he uh, takes a pillow and smothers her. Yes, in the same shot. There's like no cut. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it feels as though, yeah, once again, I like, I like watched that part twice this time. And it was like, how, because you're like barely, you're, you're barely even like paying attention to the story. And then all of a sudden, like that happens. And like, you're like, what is the? Maybe the story is some somehow like reads reads into this, and it really like no, it's like a mundane story that he's telling. Yet another, this is just yet another mundane moment here between these two, where time just needs to be filled with something, and it, it leads to this, where he ultimately takes it into his own hands and kills her, ends her suffering. You know, it did occur to me this time that maybe there's there's something there about the story he tells with the the whole stars thing. You know, maybe that just relates to like not being able to communicate that you want out, that um, you know, you're you're done, mm-hmm. that you're you're suffering in a way that she can't anymore cuz she spends a good part of the movie after her second stroke, just like rambling nonsense, she pretty much is gone at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and again, it's one of those things I don't want to just investigate too closely, but there was a moment where I was like, oh, maybe this does actually click in a little bit. 
Yeah, not to harp too much on the story, but yeah, again, for me, it's effective in the way that it just reiterates she, she's been gone to him for a long time at this point. And that's what's hard for him through this whole thing. And that's hard for both of them, like for her to watch and not like communicate that like they're basically just sitting there inert looking at their corpse that is their relationship basically it's just like it's it's been over and that's what's so difficult about this situation is like okay maybe she ate today or like ate like maybe she shed a she said a couple words today but that's like all they have that is not that's not what they want they want their old relationship back they want their old life back and if that's not here like that's what keeps on being reiterated that like none none of this is going to ever like add up to what once was and it's and she said at the very early outset she doesn't want to live through this she knows that this is over yeah there's no getting that stuff back and all you got to do is see the opening scene of that movie but also just know in real life that sometimes it's just the end there has to be an end and this Mm -hmm. is the end and there's no cure coming you know all they can do is decide maybe exactly how they're they're going to end it as far as how long they keep her alive and to me it doesn't feel ugly this the the smothering scene it only registered i mean it's obviously like horrifying in a way but to me it i can't help but see it only as an extension of like a like a loving gesture in a way of following her wishes and finding closure (laughs) rather than constantly drawing it out like everybody else around them wants them to do yeah it's a relief for everybody involved really um but only they really understand that the daughter doesn't quite understand that and one of the cool things about just getting that away, getting that out of the way in the opening scene is now the movie is kind of free to end wherever it wants to. And we do have him preparing to leave the apartment. He's writing these letters. Uh, he, he catches the pigeon and sets it free, presumably. And we get to see him like leaving the apartment. It seems like for the last time, I'm not really sure where he goes or what comes of him. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, his wife is just back there making dinner. And that's that's such a uh, it's such a simple thing just to cut to just her being there back to normal not in this like sappy way but almost in this like dreamlike way and they both just kind of get on their coats and and take off i love that i forgot about that and it's so effective too cuz everything else is just so you know clean cut and straight ahead and just the little flourish like that, suddenly she's just there. I mean, mm-hmm. it really packs a punch. I mean, in a very, like, openly, again, like, not in a traditionally sentimental way, but that is, like, to me, it's, like, they're they're leaving together. They're leaving this life together. Like, he's still, they're they're still intertwined even, like, after death. And not saying some sort of, like, they went to heaven and they're still holding hands in heaven or something. But like, if he goes on, he's carrying her with him, right? Uh, just like she would do the same. And that's how I see that like dreamlike scene where they 
you know, she reemerges and they leave together hand in hand. Uh, and again, it's very mundane. She just finishes something at the sink and makes sure he gets his coat on. You know, there's no tinkling score swelling underneath. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were describing here sounds like it could be like a movie of the week or something. Yeah. Again, similar to funny games in that, like, the describing it and seeing it are, like, just so different. It is such a... It really is something that only Hanaki could pull off in this specific way. And so, yeah, it turns out he does have a heart, after all. Yes. <laughs> That's he's, kind of the big surprise. He still really feels the need to wail on you, but, yeah... <laughs> And, uh, you know, if I was, if I did have to say, like, one critical thing about the movie is that it does continue with one more scene past that, which, which is just the daughter, uh, played by Isabel Huppert, who's, band, like, she's a phenomenal actor. Um, not, this isn't a big showcase role for her or anything, but anytime she turns up in a movie, I'm like, hell yeah. No. Yeah. And, uh, so, but there is a little scene after that of her just in the empty apartment, maybe to establish that the husband does not come back. Like this is just an abandoned place now. Uh, but I did feel like that didn't give me the kind of ending that I wanted. I agree. Fuck, right? fuck that scene. I totally agree. Like it should end like with them. This movie is about them. Mm. Get out of here. Like daughter, like it's not about, <laughs> it's not about you. And it, like the gesture of her being in the very final scene after that very emotional dreamlike walkout moment between the two is, I don't know. It just seemed, yeah, I agree. It's like kind of a misstep, not anything glaring, yeah. but it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's only because it's the last thing that we see that it stands out. I think. Yeah. But yeah, overall, I mean, two terrific, painful movies. Um, but if you are going to watch both of them, I would end with more so you get just a little bit of hope to put some skip in your step on the way out the door. Not that you'll be skipping. Uh, no. <laughs> but you, you, you might have, uh, you know, you might not be like angry or scared or something or Seth I think that's what the uh I think that that was the movie's tagline was you might not be angry or scared. <laughs> <laughs> um did you guys notice that the uh the main characters in funny games the couple and, and the main characters in Amore are the uh, both couples they're named Anne and George. I noticed George but Anne too. That's so fucked up. And and uh, and actually, this is something that that occurs in at least eight of of this guy's films. The the, the couples are always named Ann and George. Oh, that's weird. Maybe he's just one of those guys that's bad with coming up with names. I guess. No, I like that. That's interesting. I like to imagine he has like six kids, and they're all named Ann and George. Yeah. Well, I think we're done here. I think we had yeah. some. Go I think we had a few good opportunities for a, a cutoff, editing wise. Definitely, sure. That was a good one. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. 
You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark.Tavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.